This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. everybody to the politics 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 program for october 28th 2022 your old pal justin robert young joining you 10 days away from the midterms oh baby it's starting to get real and we are going to break it all down for you in fact this is a great episode to share with your friends and family that have only sort of now begun to clue in to the midterms, politics curious folks, if you will, because we're laying down the parameters of kind of not only what has happened, but also what you can expect. So this is a great cram guide for all, all things midterms. I'm going to lay out my spectrum of possibilities. I've got four destinations that range from very positive for the Democrats to very positive for the Republicans. I will give you hard numbers, what is likely to happen, the things that will happen throughout the night that you'll be able to keep track of. And of course, what the ramifications of each of these scenarios are. We will also be welcoming our old friend, Andrew Heaton. Now, here's a problem with the old sweet Andy Heats. You know, he is an amazing podcaster, a great political mind, and somebody that is probably the most voracious reader of all kinds of uh, philosophical, historical and political content. He does a great show, The Political Orphanage, in which he breaks down exactly what he wants. But he's not exactly a horse race politician observer like we are here on this program. And while we know and appreciate The Political Orphanage for being the thinky podcast that it is, when my boy is out at a cocktail party, when he's invited on somebody else's podcast, all they want to know are the questions that people are asking of us. Who's going to win? What's this race like? I can't believe that blank is doing well. And so, being a good bro, I brought on Andrew Heaton and we cram for somebody that has spent most of this summer outside of the country. We cram him up on all the knowledge that he needs to know about the midterms. And if you are just now getting into this, there's a lot of things that are confusing to you, but you're afraid to ask. This is a great interview at the end of this show. We also have a little bit of news here for you. And that is a bizarre situation that has unfolded between the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the White House on the issue of Ukraine. In fact, It was a U-turn on Ukraine when it came to Pramila Jayapal and her progressive group. All that. Bird first. All right. I don't really do predictions on this show. Mostly because, I don't know, it's it's basically just kind of clout gambling. And and while I have a sense of where things are going, I, I can fairly accurately pick out trends, uh, things that are real, things that are not real. It is one of the greatest compliments that people pay to this program is that they wind up listening to it when... They're excited about something. They think something is really going to affect a candidate or a race or an office. And then they listen to this show so I can either say, well, it's not quite that big of a deal. Or this does mean a lot. 
it really is it is it is great to be able to be that sherpa through the nonsense for you guys so instead of predictions i am going to give you my spectrum of midterm possibilities four scenarios that if they are going through the progression of the night and they start to kind of seem to land in one of these four places you can say oh that's where it's that's where it's headed as opposed to you know cuz here's what's going to happen the midterms are going to happen and then whoever won or whoever lost is going to make up their own narrative on what did or didn't happen so by laying out the four possible scenarios in my mind at least we can know whether or not these parties overperformed or underperformed and so we begin with the rosiest possible scenario for the democrats and that is what I like to call the gas leak miracle. That would be the Democrats keep the House by anything over one. So literally, they just, they lose a couple seats. I think they have a 15-seat majority now. They lose 14 seats, but they don't lose the House. So they keep the House. All right, great for them. That's an amazing overperformance. And they grow their lead in the Senate. Let's say that they get to 51-49. Now they only have to deal with one of Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. The miracle here would mostly be in the House. The Republicans do not need to win a district that Biden won in 2020. And that was when the Democrats had Trump on the ballot and COVID chaos to play off of. This is a bad scenario for the Democrats and the House is likely lost. Indeed, Crystal Ball, one of the most well-respected predictors of political races, say that it is just as likely right now that the Republicans get a 40-seat majority, meaning that they win 50 seats during the midterms, as it is that the Democrats retain the House. This is unlikely. But what if it happened? Well, the Democrats would rejoice. The Republicans would be in shambles. The GOP civil war between Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and Rick Scott would continue to rage on as fingers would begin pointing. Nancy Pelosi would crack open another pint of ice cream while her husband drunk drove donuts into the lawn of the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Obviously, if this is to happen, it would mean that the landscape would be good for Democrats. Maybe people overplayed how negative their thoughts toward Joe Biden was. Maybe we would think that there are secret Democrats that are not being polled, meaning that we missed the fact that there was a gigantic firewall of blue support. And if that happened, then it would be good enough to push some of these 50-50 Senate races their way. That being said, even In this scenario, I can't see them getting more than one ahead in the Senate. You know, they would be obviously holding Georgia. They'd be holding Arizona. They'd be holding Nevada. That means that they would have to win either the John Fetterman race in Pennsylvania, which looks even shakier than the coin flip that it did after the debate, or they would have to win Ohio where Tim Ryan would secretly be running the campaign that a lot of political pundits and reporters keep telling me he is. I don't see it, but you could really dunk on me there and say Tim Ryan, a senator in the great state of Ohio. But like I said, I think that they would most likely wind up getting the Fetterman seat. Also, if you are a Democrat and you are experiencing this scenario on midterm night, I care about you. Please check for a gas leak. There is a non-zero chance that you might be asphyxiating, and this is a fantasy just as your brain slowly, slowly begs for oxygen. Moving on to something a little bit more realistic, what I call Dark Brandon's Last Stand. So, bad news, Democrats lose the House, but it's a razor-thin majority. We're talking five to ten seats, and you keep the Senate where it is, 50-50. Okay? So the House is lost. 
but it wasn't a big lead to lose. And crossing over that threshold for Kevin McCarthy to be the Speaker of the House isn't that big of a deal. The story that Democrats would tell coming out of this is that it was a really competitive night. There is a lot of support for Dobbs. There is a lot of support for the Democratic Party. They are building an important coalition. They probably haven't lost Hispanics to the level that they were afraid of. And you know what really are the Republicans inheriting in the House? Because Kevin McCarthy would have maybe even less of a lead than Nancy Pelosi has now. So instead of the Congressional Progressive Caucus mucking things up, it's Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene who are even further into the headlines because they are actually important votes going forward. And that's not a bad place for Republicans to be test driving what it looks like for them in power leading in to the presidential election in 24. You could do worse than saying, oh, come on, what are you going to do? Vote Republican so you can have more Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene because they would actually be in the center ring. Meanwhile, you keep the Senate. You can push through a bunch of bills that Joe Manchin might even vote for because he knows that they're never going to pass the House. Messaging to beat the band again going into 24. And up top, there would sit Joe Biden. The old fox still having a few tricks left up his sleeves. He navigated the ship through the rocky shores of the venomous snapback midterm. The one that has bit almost every president before him in the butt. And he lived to tell the tale. You know, that's a pretty good way to start the drumbeat for a 2024 run. And then, of course, we have our first positive scenario for the Republicans. One I call, The Old Crow Calls at Midnight. That would be Republicans taking a 20 to 25 seat lead in the House and taking the Senate by 49 to 51. And it would all be about this man. He's back. Cocaine Mitch is reloaded and reclaiming the gavel left by Chuck Schumer. And... Kevin McCarthy wouldn't be totally beholden to the Freedom Caucus. On the Democratic side, whew, more finger pointing than a disco. Schumer and Bernie for bungling Build Back Better and not getting the child tax credit, which is universally popular between voters, especially in the suburbs, that will have told the tale in this election. Could have gotten that passed instead of arguing with each other. And you would have something retail for these Democratic Senate candidates to run on. Oh, the progressives would be in the barrel, too, for even daring to bring defund the police close to the party doorstep. But above all else, the White House, who will now have a very challenging six months as they feel around the landscape for possible challengers to Joe Biden. Will he? Won't he run? That's going to be the biggest issue through the holidays and into the spring of 23 if we are living in the old crow calls at midnight. But it could be worse. Could be worse if that were the case for the Democrats. Could be worse. Because it could be our final scenario. The final scenario that I am calling Latuya Bay, Alaska, July 9th, 1958. That would be the Republicans by 40 seats. That would be Republicans having a 52 to 48 lead in the Senate. The Latuya Bay tsunami was an over 1,700-foot wave, the largest ever recorded. It inundated five square miles of land and cleared hundreds of thousands of trees. But in the political version of this scenario, that means that the GOP protects all their Senate seats. And 
wins two out of the three of Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. You want to know what? If we even go beyond this, because this is the most aggressive scenario that I have, then we're talking about Colorado. We're talking about Washington. In fact, if during the midterms, you hear the words, we're waiting on the returns from Denver. <laughs> we're waiting on the returns from Seattle. Then this has been what happened. That means that the red wave is reaching into lands that were, they were heretofore untouchable for, for, for the Republicans. And, and things might look even worse than 5248 in the Senate. But it still gets worse for them than that. Because the Senate map in 24 is more vulnerable for the Democrats. We're talking about 24 setting up in this scenario. If the, the, the Republicans are able to get, you know, two more seats. Three more seats. Four more seats. If they get to that level then 24 becomes a real shot for them to put together a filibuster-proof majority. But that's getting ahead of things because there's going to be some real internal violence on the blue team. Biden, toast. No 24. As far as you and the Democrats go, there is no us. Nope. Make like Jordan Peele and get out. Nancy Pelosi, done like dinner. Schumer, you're lucky you just won re-election, but it's time to hit the background again. No speaking role. Dems are going to reboot with a new cast like the middle of the season of House of Dragon. In fact, in this scenario, boy, you're going to start to hear a lot about Bill Clinton. 92. Why do we ever think that triangulating was a bad word? Why do we ever think that tough on crime Democrat was a bad word? Remember when Bill Clinton was, was uh, you know, he's playing a little bit of the culture war stuff. We need to get back to that. Because if Latuya Bay, Alaska, July 9th, 1958 happens, then the old Democrats are gone. And you're going to see. The capital N, capital E, capital W, new Democrats emerge. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting this show. Fully independent, fully independent. We ain't getting money from anybody but you. I am on the road for you. I'm heading out to Nevada next week. So I can cover Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt, one of those pivotal matchups, one of them that will probably determine who is in charge in the Senate. And it's because you guys support us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, in fact, I love your support so much. I'm giving you a bonus story here in the middle of our ad read. This is an update from our Wednesday story when we told you that Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg had been MIA in donating to the midterms. Two gigantic Democratic billionaires, but two billionaires who both ran for president in 24. Spent a lot of money there. Might have been a little butthurt. Guess what? The fact that that was reported on must have gotten to Bloomberg because he, according uh, to a Politico article on Wednesday, is now dumping 10 million into house races in the final 14 days. Quote, Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor, is spending another 10 million to the House Majority Pack. An advisor told Politico the donation comes as Democratic leadership labors for more dollars to protect seats and avert a massive red wave. Now, who knows if that money is going to be well spent, but I do know that the money will be well spent if you support it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Because for only $3 a week, and we only got two weeks left in this, that means $6. For $6, you can be on top of these midterms. Every twist, every turn, two bonus podcasts each and every week for you on this, the Politics, Politics, Politics program. <laughs> 
Bonus podcast on Monday. Bonus podcast on Thursday. If anything breaks after Wednesday, Thursday is the latest that we cover everything. And on the last version of our bonus podcast, you also got a more in-depth breakdown of not only the Fetterman versus Oz debate, but also the Zeldin versus Hochul debate in New York. That's what we're doing for you, baby. We're here. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right, let's get out of the midterms for a couple seconds and let me spin you a yarn here, okay? The Congressional Progressive Caucus, chaired by Pramila Jayapal, sent a two-page letter this week to the White House urging that President Biden embolden his diplomatic efforts to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We will quote here, given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe that it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support of the United States with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that there is going to have to be a negotiated settlement somewhere. Direct quotes. We'll get back to that in a second. And your concern that Vladimir Putin, quote, doesn't have a way out right now. And I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. Again, a direct quote from Joe Biden. Now, when I say that this letter is carefully worded, I mean, very specifically, it is carefully worded. There is no point in this letter where the Congressional Progressive Caucus is suggesting anything that hasn't been directly said by either Joe Biden or Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. They just want to say, maybe the United States should be more proactively involved diplomatically, which would probably suggest that from what they know on, on uh, top secret briefings, that we are not particularly diplomatically involved right now. So, how to go over? Well, like a turd in the water fountain, uh, terribly. Quote a member of the House Democratic leadership to Politico. Vladimir Putin would have signed that letter if asked. The boneheaded letter just put the Dems in the same league as Kevin McCarthy, who said last week that Ukraine funding could be in jeopardy. Meanwhile, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut goes on the record and says moral and strategic peril will come if you sit down with Putin too early. Sometimes a bully must be shown the limits of his power before diplomacy can work and, quote, send tweet. And so, Pramila Jayapal, head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, hit the Uno reverse and back down. Oh, whoa, 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 she said in another letter. We want to just clarify a few points. Number one, diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, but it's just one tool, one tool, that's all. And also, we made explicitly clear in our letter and will continue to make clear that we support President Biden and his administration's commitment to uh, the fact that nothing about Ukraine is Ukraine without Ukraine. That's a little shorthand basically saying we're in with Ukraine forever. But that wasn't enough. No, the day after Jayapal sent the clarification, they pulled the letter all together. There is no room in the Democratic Party for anything even resembling a crack in support when it comes to Ukraine. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the State Department in the Biden administration is very powerful. It tells you that Joe Biden and those around him believe that really the only thing that they have going for him right now is that they are on the right side of history when it comes to 
Ukraine, and Putin. It also says that the Democrats will not give up on the idea that Ukraine will get effectively blank check support as long as the Democrats can muster it. The other side of this is right now, the Democrats do not want to show that they are anywhere close to Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy saying that, hey, when I'm going to be in charge in a couple of days, at least in the House, I'm going to be a little bit more critical about some of this funding. Doesn't say that he's not going to not going to push it. But you have seen some in the Freedom Caucus begin to get a little antsy about exactly how much is going to Ukraine and how much oversight we have on where it is being spent. Not a gigantic thing, but certainly something to keep an eye on as we move past the midterms. It's hard to be a pundit. It is. When you are known, when it's your job to know about politics, certain times on the calendar, usually around elections, it becomes the thing that people want to ask you about. I was at a conference a couple weeks ago. And it was a lot of very, very, very impressive people with amazing jobs, doctors, lawyers, uh, people in government, people who are lawyers to other people in government, uh, uh, just extraordinary human beings. And when I would say, when it would come to me, oh, what do you do? I'd say a podcaster. I'd kind of get a blank look. Oh, because people don't know what to ask a podcaster. Half of them even don't listen to them. So like, well, what the hell are they going to talk to me about? But as soon as I say that I'm a political podcaster, oh boy, do they have questions. What do you think about this person? What do you think about that person? Can you believe that blank and blank and blank happened? And I have no doubts that Andrew Heaton, my fellow brother in arms, when it comes to independent political podcasting and my co-host on We're Not Wrong, suffers the same fate. But like we said in the intro, he doesn't watch this stuff as closely as I do. So if I needed to get a crash course on all sorts of philosophical and historical contexts, which Heaton is amazing at, then I figured I can return the favor and give him a crash course on the 2022 midterms, which means you guys get a crash course as well. All the questions that you have about these races but were afraid to ask, we will go over Right now, because ya boy, Andy Heats, is back on the program. Welcome back to the show, Heaton. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, finally, we can be free of this briny character that keeps haunting <laughs> all of our conversations. Uh, I know, with her irrational hatred of the Bills or the Patriots or whichever team it is we love. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do you a, a favor and, and you're going to do me a favor by filling a half hour content on my program. So, uh, okay. uh, you, I know are not necessarily the biggest fan of the TikTok horse race political coverage here in, in, uh, the United States of America, a country for which you fled for the last several months. So since everybody is, wait, is knows, there a lot of political stuff on TikTok? Because I thought it was mostly just like hot people doing challenges. No, there's actually a ton of I mean, like I wasn't referring to the Chinese spyware app, but but yes, that app is is very, very populated with, with huh. political conversation. Not always the best takes, but often mm-hmm. ones repeated by people under 25. Oh, nice. Great. Uh, but. You know, you are a political podcast host, which means everyone's going to ask you for the next two weeks what you think of the midterms. And I'm here to help you cram. Thank you. Uh, I actually did this on another show yesterday and had to do the pivoting maneuver of constantly bringing it back to something else or stuff you've told me previously. So this is great. This is actually (laughs) what I normally do. I was just on another podcast and they wanted me to play the pundit. I was happy to do that. And then I remembered, uh oh. 
I tend to focus on conceptual things like, yes, is, is, is it how, what, what makes inflation happen is uh, how, how does antitrust legislation work? I tend to kind of gravitate that direction. I'm really interested in, in policy and ideas, and I don't really pay a lot of attention to nope. the individual races anymore. So like, I don't, I don't know three quarters of them. Uh, I, I, I know that Herschel Walker is a character and okay. uh, that's about all I know. Oh, and, we, and Dr. We, right. Ross, he's, he's running, isn't he? He is. He is. So where do you want to start? Because I can help you cram for for one of those two races. I can I can give you give you give you the rundown. Uh, uh, which one? Uh, uh, Dr. Okay. Raza Herschel Walker. Uh, OK, so for, for uh, let, let's start with Herschel Walker. And I've got an intro question for you. Okay. Uh, the the small amount of Herschel Walker clips I've seen belie yes. an idiot. However, <laughs> I am aware that uh, he is also going to be subject to cherry picked clips and things like that yes. by virtue of the political process. So is he as dumb as everybody makes him look? Herschel Walker uh, is, and this is, these are only stated facts. He has written a book about having dissociative identity, uh, identity disorder. Uh, What's so that? he is uh, a multiple, multiple personality. personality. Yeah. He has written wow. a book about overcoming that. Uh, he has also plied his trade in both professional football and collegiate football, of course, famously, and so he's a Republican MMA two things for which are fairly famous for their head trauma. But mm. Herschel Walker is a freak athlete uh, who has since then gone on to various different uh, levels of uh, a public good. So is he well, let's, an idiot? Let's, let's let's hope one of the other personalities absorb the blows if he gets elected. That way he's not <laughs> affected by it. Now, he does say that he has gotten through it. And the book is about him overcoming these these issues. He also says that a lot of the violent things in his past, up to and including domestic violence charges against one of his uh, ex-wives, happened while he was in the throes of this mental disorder. And he does not remember any of them. Mm. OK, so is he an idiot? I mean, this is a question that I, I kind of always wrestle with because it leads you to the question is, is any politician not an idiot? Like, like right. what is what is our line on who's exceptionally stupid on the scale of politician for which passing your SATs is not a requirement? Having a lot of mm. people like you and saying the right things at the right time and having a firm handshake is is a requirement. OK. All right. Uh, is he going to win? And who's he now running against? Is, okay, so he's running against Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock okay. won in the 2020 runoff. So remember that uh, uh, amongst all the stuff that was going on between Trump and Biden, there was also these two races in Georgia that wound up running very, very close. And in Georgia, they have a runoff where if you're below 50%, you go to another election. It just so happened that these milk toast, not great Republican candidates, two sitting Republican senators. Now we're in a state that was engulfed in a gigantic inner Republican squabble between Donald Trump, the most popular person in the party and their governor, Brian Kemp and secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. So mm -hmm. when I went down to Georgia and I was covering those runoffs, Donald Trump, the rally that I was at, he was doing active voter suppression not really talking about go out and vote for these two Republican candidates, but rather, please understand that I was robbed by this election and I'm going to work very hard to kick your bum governor and secretary of state out of office when they are up for reelection. Something he tried to do and failed, by the way. But in the process, two Democrats get elected. John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock is the one who is up for a full term now against Herschel Walker, a man handpicked by Donald Trump. And thus far, the only thing he's gotten right in Georgia since he got so mad at everybody. OK, uh, I would assume that Georgia leans Republican normally. And so it's an uphill battle for the incumbent Democrats. You, you would think that, and that has been the case traditionally, but Joe Biden won in 2020. Uh, these two or Democratic candidates won the runoffs, although I do think that you have to give the assist to Donald Trump there. The question is exactly how far is it going to lean to the left now, considering the big thing about this midterms, and if you ever want a cop-out answer for anything, it's very simple. 
the opposition party usually wins when right. one party has three, the, the, the House, the Senate and, and the White House. That's the easiest way to do it. It's the easiest way to say that I, I wouldn't count the Republicans out. And so the question is, in this case, will the natural inclination in a purple, a very 50-50 kind of purple state at this point, will it lean more to the right, especially considering Brian Kemp? who Donald Trump hated and swore to to uh, get out of office if it was his last uh, 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 deed on earth, is extraordinarily popular in Georgia and is beating the living hell out of Stacey Abrams, who had spent the last four years running for uh, a governor. Oh, she's running it, again. Oh, yeah. And she's going to lose and it's going to be bad. Uh, oh, do you OK? Do you reckon that that will be attributed to an actual loss or will that be uh, reckoned as <laughs> voter suppression, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you know, uh, uh, not to step on a topic that we're going to talk about on on the new episode of We're Not Wrong, which at the point that people are hearing this uh, uh, will have already been out. But, yeah, I, I do think that she has already spent a lot of time talking about voter suppression. When I was in Georgia just recently for the for the debate between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, and as I like to do, just leave the uh uh the the television at the hotel to a local daytime programming so it's just judge judy yelling at a teenager and then four attack ads about how one candidate's going to murder your grandma and then judge judy goes back to yelling at the teenager the ad that stacy abrams was running was all about voter suppression and all about how Black turnout was incredibly important and you needed to overcome the voter suppression that was currently happening in the state. All that being said, I think she's going to lose by enough that even she will say, uh, uh, I, I think I think we did OK, especially because Raphael Warnock is going to run ahead of her and he's also a Democrat and black. Mm, OK, Uh all right. I am very curious about the Senate election in Utah with Evan McMullen. It is my understanding that Evan McMullen, who ran as a third party kind of never Trumper candidate back in 2016, yep. has remained active in Utah politics. That was the state that that at the time was thought if he took any electoral vote, it would be Utah. Um, yep. He's now running in Utah as an independent, but sensibly convince the Democrats not to put up a candidate so that yes. they're, they're not going to split it. So it's Evan McMullen, the independent versus Mike Lee. How's that going? Terribly. For Evan <laughs> McMullen or Mike Lee? For for Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen mm -hmm. is not a great candidate. And by the way, Mike Lee, I believe either voted for or supported Evan McMullen in that uh, uh, 2016. Uh, Mike, Mike Lee was a never Trumper up until he wasn't. Like you think about like, until like, he Mike, wasn't. Mike, Mike Lee in 2016 was still a rigidly constitutional conservative ideologue. Uh, and then at some point had his come to Trump moment and has completely turned tail on that. But but initially was one of the I think he was one the first senator to call for Trump to stand down as a candidate after the uh, uh, the uh, bus uh, pussy grabbing. Yeah, the, tape access, video. the access Hollywood tape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, look, uh, uh, there is a world where if Evan McMullen was a more exciting campaigner and he had an issue like he he's the kind of guy that if he had a very local issue he had a statewide issue that he could get on the other side of Mike Lee from that there might be stories being written about the miracle in in the valley or something like that but this is not that race uh, uh Utah is still a very republican state and Evan McMullen while I'm sure a very fine man with a lot of deep roots in that state is not somebody that I think the the re very blood red Republican electorate is willing to give up the Senate for. And that okay. ultimately is the case right now when we have a 50 50 Senate. Mm, all right. Uh, what about uh, Mike Itkus, the independent porn candidate <laughs> from New York running against Jerry Nadler? Now, that one is very, very interesting. And you can listen to us talk a lot about it on on, uh, on on We're Not Wrong. But if you're not familiar, yes, indeed, there was a candidate, is a candidate, rather, an independent candidate running against Gerald Nadler for uh, his Manhattan House seat uh, that while on his docket, he is for sex workers' rights, and he put something where his mouth is uh, uh, because he he recorded himself having sex with a uh, adult performer on uh, Pornhub. Just uploaded a porn video of himself. In fact, people kept keep calling it a sex tape, 
it's not a sex. T- it's like it is a production. They're like playing characters. So uh, uh, really, you know, I they think have it's a just, plot and stuff. <laughs> it's it's you know a, a, a video art. I think more than yeah. it is a feature film or anything. But but they're definitely these. You know, they're, they're playing little uh, little 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 roles there. At least a okay. friend told me. Well, I I remain for people that haven't heard we're not wrong. I remain of the opinion that uh, I am far less offended by a politician uh, making a porno than by a politicians pitting the American people against each other for fun and profit. Um, so I I think this guy's actually head and shoulders above most of the people currently running for office. Uh, how's he doing in polling? Terrible. Jerry Nadler's yeah, going to win that figure, seat, yeah. and it's it's yeah, you know that that's Man, one of Nadler's those. Nadler's the uh, one that ate Maloney when they were redistricted, right? Like the, exactly, it was Maloney and exactly. Nadler. They were longtime Democrats. They collided. He devoured her, uh, and now he's going to devour Mike Itkus. I know that you you are not a big uh, sports fan, but surely, at least by osmosis, while you were attending Oklahoma University, you can remember that the football team would every once in a while play like the school for the blind in between other gigantic football programs and they'd win by 70 points. That's the spread that Jerry Nadler is going to beat everybody else in that in that uh, uh, race by. Well, I'm going to tell you, honestly, the two big ones that I was excited about were Mike Itkus, the porn candidate, and Evan McMullen, <laughs> the independent. And it sounds like I'm not going to have any fun. Uh, is, did I hear that Ben Sass is stepping down? Is he, is, when does his term conclude? Did I get that right? No, I don't think Ben Sass is stepping down. Hold on. Well, I shouldn't let say me, stepping me... down, but, but I, I heard somewhere he's not planning to run for re-election. So this will be his last term. Uh, so he was elected in 2020. He would be up again in 2026. Oh, okay. That seems oh, weird yes, for him. No, he will. That. He's going to revi- resign from the Senate and become the president of the University of Florida, which is very interesting because he's a fairly conservative guy and he's going to take over a very, very uh, uh, liberal institution in Gainesville, Florida. I wonder what the connection is there because he's from Nebraska, is he not? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he just wants to get into that sweet academia life. It seems like the, there's there's nothing that can go wrong there with a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, students. Maybe maybe yeah. maybe he looks around at at politics and says, I don't know, too mature. I really I really want to mix yeah. things up a little bit. Uh, and, and you're right, a, a former Republican senator uh, becoming the head of an academic institution full of very angry uh, young progressives in, in no way could could uh, be harmful to his career. Although it is something that I could very much understand considering the politics in Florida now, University of Florida is a public institution. So uh, if, you know, the same legislature and and uh, uh, appointed folks that decided that Disney World should not have its own special governmental zone would probably also want a staunch Republican to be in charge of one of their premier mm-hmm. public institutions between that and Florida State University, there are none uh, of, you know, bigger, I guess, UCF for all of my friends who uh, uh, graduated there. Would probably and is, be the he, is he stepping down now or at the in 2026 and in, in the next uh, next election? Let's see here. This was just announced in October. Uh, so he is formally going to be interviewed by uh, the, the Regency in November 1st. And yeah, it looks like it'll be it'll be soon. So there'll be somebody else that'll be appointed in his in his stead uh, before okay. uh, before the next the next election. Are you so you are not a sass man? No, no, I like sass. He's one of the few Republicans left that that I think is worth assault. Uh, I liked Jeff Flake. I like Ben Sass, uh, and uh, so I'm I'm sad he's leaving. I think the the he he was. Uh, a um, if the Republican Party were more like him, I would be more inclined to be Republican. Uh, I suspect that 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 whoever fill, uh, fills his boots will probably be more of the angry pitchfork populist culture war type guy, which brings us to Dr. Oz and the sick man. Well, you know, it's funny because the two Republican, two of the Republicans that I think you would probably also have uh, uh, fonder feelings for are Rob Portman of Ohio and uh, uh, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. They are both stepping down. That's why we have two Republican elections in Pennsylvania and Ohio. But the Pennsylvania one certainly is the marquee, at least in terms of candidates. You have the TV doctor man, Dr. Oz, which, by the way, 
He was a real doctor. He got famous. He got on television because he oh, gave. No, he, he was uh, he was the head of the Harvard uh, Harvard Medical uh, what is it Harvard Columbia, Medical School Student Columbia, Association Columbia. or something. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He was yeah. Columbia is where he taught. He was uh, still performing uh, uh, you know various experiments and and surgeries at the Columbia Hospital for for a good long while, even while he was doing television. But. Obviously, most famously, he's there for, you know, segments where he would dance with Michelle Obama and then tell you that drinking castor oil would lose 15 pounds by Friday for that mm-hmm. beach belly that you've always wanted. And now he's running against John Fetterman. John Fetterman's a fascinating candidate because he was more progressive than Connor Lamb, the guy that he beat in the primary. Connor Lamb very much out of that. After Obama happened, there was they they just pumped a bunch of white guys who did Obama impressions out of a factory and <laughs> and just ran them into the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, Connor Lamb is one of them. Uh, he got famous because he won a special election after Trump. Remember that time after Trump when everybody was paying attention to these random special elections that were happening like three months after 2016? Connor Lamb won one of those in Pennsylvania and everybody anointed him the future mm. of the party, at least in the Keystone State. Turns out he wasn't. John Fetterman is. Uh, he's more progressive, but he has been smart enough to not call himself a socialist. He wears uh, basketball shorts and a hoodie. He looks like a menthol smells. And uh, <laughs> he was somebody that I think would be very, very good if he didn't have a stroke and a heart attack two days before the primary. He has spent the summer recuperating. He's now at least back on the road. And unfortunately, we are recording this before they have their debate. So if something horrifying or crazy happened during the debate, uh, we're not going to talk about it here. But right now, this is a, a pretty a pretty title uh, a race. Uh, Fetterman was running ahead of Oz for a while. Oz didn't really have an issue, but it gets us into this. This is another good take. When everybody asks you what you think, all you have to do is just say crime. And trail off and let them fill into it because that is the defining issue for Republicans so far is really crime okay, see, is bad. I, they're not going with inflation. I thought like because inflation is so complicated, like I, on the political orphanage, I've now brought on uh, three economists and I'm still not entirely clear what's happening. And, and I'd say yeah. I'm smarter than the average bear on political economy. So if, if I'm having a difficult time grasping it, everybody uh, most people are having a difficult time grasping it, um, which would seem to me to put whoever the incumbent is in a really difficult situation, because it's very easy to say the guy running the show is is causing inflation. Vote for us. We won't cause inflation. But if you are the person there, you have to go, well, actually, the supply chain, you have to kind of get mealy mouthed <laughs> about it and this complex thing. So it seems to me that that would be a strategic Achilles heel heel um, for the Democrats. But that's not where the Republicans are running on. It is. And yes, uh, not only is that the case, but also the Republicans have fairly effectively been able to not only turn inflation against the Democrats, but also kind of force a few own goals. A reminder that every other covid relief bill that was passed under Trump was bipartisan. The only one that has not been bipartisan happened after Biden came in. It was called the American Rescue Plan. The problem is, is that when America feels like it needs rescuing more than it did before you pass that bill, that tends to be you've, you've just created your own branding to hit you with mm. almost as bad as the Inflation Reduction Act, for which inflation has only continued to soar since it was passed by solely Democratic vote. So that is an issue. However, viscerally, while going to the grocery store is painful for folks, a murder happening somewhere, either in your neighborhood or maybe more specifically on television, is something that you are scared about. It makes you worry about your property values, makes you worry about your children, makes you worry about everything that kind of triggers these very visceral reactions. And Democrats, specifically in races like like Wisconsin, have been a little free with, you know, if not saying to fund the police, definitely not saying not to fund the police. And there is a sense that, you know, somewhere in the goulash between lockdowns and progressive politics that all Democrats have had to wear the the crime, uh, uh, the, the, the yoke of crime. And so that has proven to be the most effective uh, poll, uh, the, the most effective campaign strategy mm. so far on the GOP side. Uh, how does that stack up to abortion? 
for Democrats. Abortion has been the incredibly the, the incredible shrinking issue. To be honest with you, if you look at the polling, it has just fallen further and further and further down. And that really kind of explains the Democratic messaging problem is that the two things that they've really, really run uh, uh, up the flagpole have been post Dobbs. Republicans are extremists and they're going to take away your abortion rights forever. And they are election deniers. And that is the other reason why you need to make sure that you vote blue no matter who. Both of those issues are falling further and further and further down. Uh, uh, you know, when when you look at polling, even polling that's favorable to Democrats, it is less and less and less than it was the poll before. Meanwhile, mm. crime, inflation and even immigration has begun to get more and more on the minds of voters. I, I'm not surprised by this. Uh, I love America, but you can always bet against our attention span. The American attention yeah. spans real, real quick when it comes to politics. So like if if Dobbs had dropped now, I think that that could turn the whole election. But if you know, g- given how long it is, people kind of cool down. Uh, one of the weird things about the Trump years was that everybody was constantly getting re-energized with anger over something constantly, yeah. but it wasn't the same thing all the time. It changed all the time. And yeah, the the uh, January 6th, which you and I have talked about and I care about uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, which I also care about that stuff that like comes in a flash. And then I think kind of recedes in terms of emotional intensity for people. Well, and here's another leadership problem, I think, for the Democrats is that they've been very, very good at identifying problems. They've been very skittish about putting forth solutions aside from saying, hey, we're going to codify Roe, which if there were support for that, they would have done it any time over the last, you know, several uh, uh, times that they've had the kind of position which was last held with with Obama, where they would have been able to codify Roe. But they didn't want to do it because it would have uh, uh, they wanted to save their powder for Obamacare. Then you would have had uh, a little bit more momentum. Same with January 6th. We spent a lot of time talking about it, but we don't even have the formal report out. We don't have you know, there's subpoenaing Trump. Who knows what where that's going to be. But when when Republicans were talking about the January 6th hearings as a you know agitprop for the midterms, I think even they were assuming that. The, the the committee would come out with a report before election day. Maybe that happens, but as of yet, it hasn't. Hmm. So what do the numbers look like? Uh we've got we've got but a squeaky majority in the House for the Democrats that's that's the vice president is the tiebreaker. Yeah. Um so it's very, very squeaky there. I don't remember what the Democratic lead in the House is. Um what what is the what do the numbers look like? What do you do you think either house will go Republican? The the House will Assuredly go Republican. Uh, the Republicans don't need to win in a district that Biden won to win the House. Uh, the 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 majority for the Democrats is very slim. I believe it's 15 seats. Uh, so so that is something that that is just fait accompli. If, if it were a tighter race, I would still favor the Republicans there just by the, the you know, the the way that the the, the seats are, are are falling here. The Senate's interesting. Because if you would have asked me two weeks ago, I would have said my gut is it remains 50-50. If not, maybe the Democrats are able to win Pat Toomey's seat in Pennsylvania and uh, uh, possibly uh, another, oh, maybe in Ohio or something like that, that they would have had a shot. Not the case. I think Ohio has has very much gone red. So here are the states to watch. Ohio, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona. And Nevada, I would say right now, if I were to, you know, uh, uh, well, here, you want to know what? I actually have the the Real Clear Politics averages uh, as we record this. Right now, Real Clear Politics has Fetterman up two in Pennsylvania. He's got uh, Laxalt, the Republican, up uh, effectively one in Nevada. Arizona, 2.5 for the Democrat. Georgia, 0.5 for the Democrat. Ohio, 0.2. So, uh, Right now, it would look like Adam Laxalt's going to flip a Democratic seat in uh, uh, in Nevada, and the uh, uh, other big seat that is that is being fought over is Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock. That looks kind of deadlock, but you know we'll see if Fetterman can flip that Republican seat blue in 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 Pennsylvania. But the momentum, the momentum, Heaton, right now 
is on the Republican side. That's another good cheat sheet uh, uh, thing that you could say is 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 right now the the momentum looks like the Republicans, but you never know. That's always a good mm-hmm. one. Always just throw you never know at the end of an opinion. So it's it's virtually guaranteed that the Republicans take the House. Yes. Uh, and so we're going to have a divided government, almost certainly moving forward, where there's going to be uh, it, it will not be a Democratic law. Well, the other here's the other thing. And this is a good. Oh, man, I'm giving you all my secrets here on 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 uh, on, on provocative things to say when people ask you about the midterms. If this is bad, and I mean, ugly for for the Democrats. And you're seeing some of these, there's like some governor races, uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. There's some polling that shows that that the challenger that she has that has gotten almost no support from the the National Republican Party, that she might be in trouble. There are some Senate seats that uh, like Colorado, where Michael Bennett might be somebody that is that is uh, uh, in play if there's a gigantic red wave, for example, if that happens. If it is that wave washes way further up shore than even we are thinking right now, my personal expectation for Biden to say that he's not seeking reelection would go way up because there mm. is going to be out and out bedlam amongst Democrats. The knives will be out. Everyone's going to be looking to blame somebody. And Brandon's going to get a lot of fingers pointed in his direction. Mm. Fair. In, in the meantime, between now and the next presidential election, basically, absolutely nothing will happen because no it will require what, bipartisan bills. There'll, there'll be a there'll be an oh shit omnibus bill at the end of the legislative session uh, to to emergency fund the government. But that's the only thing that's going to get passed. Maybe we can name some post offices, but that's it. Get ready for, you know, it's called Washington, D.C. because it's only going to be the debt ceiling that we will talk about between the next two years, no matter what happens, whether it's uh, 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 Democrats in in charge by a hair like they have been and a Republican House or if the Republicans have both the House and the Senate, no matter what, nothing's going to get done uh, uh, because Biden's not going to sign anything uh, um, and well, wait, if hold it's, on. so so let, let's say the Republicans take the House and the Senate um, yeah. and Biden announces he is not running for a second term. At that point, wouldn't he have some actual incentives to sign actual needed legislation if the Republicans summoned the will to make it? If that happened and Joe Biden says, this is my swan song, this is all I care about, and then dusts off like we get we get a, a, a flowers for Algernon style uh, rekindling all of a sudden he's not stuttering anymore uh, he he's keeping his memory and it's just 85 Joe but he gets his neck wobble back that disappeared some point over the last five years with all the facelifts like he's just back like hey Jack I'm 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 doing it again and he's just wheeling and dealing he is the kind of guy that I do think what surprised me is that he hasn't played as much of a uniter bipartisan role because that kind of was the guy he was in the Senate. I think that he felt the pressure of being the head of the party. Um, So maybe I, I would say I would I would put that at a possible a possible, especially it's, if, if it's he also, didn't have any future. It's also predicated that the Republicans would actually be passing like real bills and not just like we we hereby declare Dr. Seuss is going to be on the $20 bill or something to, you know, the virtue signal to their base, which is a big if that they'd actually yeah. be trying to govern. Subpoenaing pictures of Hunter Biden's taint uh, for the yes. benefit of uh, America. Yeah, something like yeah. that, which, uh, uh, you know, especially with the House. And by the way, here's the other thing. If this is not quite a gigantic lead for the Republicans in the House, for which I would define around where the Democrats have it now at 10 to 15, that means the most popular and loudest people in the Congress will be the Freedom Caucus, the Matt Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens, because they're going to be the votes that Kevin McCarthy needs. And you are going to see a lot more of 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 their antics actually being played out in the house if that lead is small if the lead's larger then kevin mccarthy can afford to say yeah look raise your money vote no on this thing that we're all going to vote for but he doesn't have to kowtow to them in the same kind of way that he would if it's a thinner majority 
Uh, you said Michael Bennett is up. Who's running against Michael Bennett? John O'Day, who uh, you might actually like because he has said that he will campaign for anybody but Trump in 24. He is probably mm. the only never Trumper that seems to have any kind of uh, a political traction. Even Brian Kemp, uh, who Donald Trump swore an oath to destroy metaphysically. Uh, uh, is still somebody who's like, well, I like Donald. He might not have some kind words for me. John O'Day's like, I don't like him. I think he sucks. Uh, I think he's bad for Colorado. He's bad for uh, America. But Michael Bennett is somebody that has steered the country wrong. The Republican Party still has the answers. Uh, and so he is running against him. That's not a real race. If we start hearing and we're going to be, oh, by the way, this is a great time to plug. We're going to be watching the midterms together on on Tuesday with uh, Jen Briney when that Wait, what rolls day around. is that? <laughs> November eighth. Hopefully, you I haven't mean, I really ought yourself. to put that in my uh, my diary here. Uh, uh, midterms when, drinking on camera with Jen go. and Justin. Okay, all right, got that. Uh, That's locked in now. I'm not going to go to book club that night. When that happens. If we are talking about, well, let's see what happens when the Denver returns comes in. That's a horrifying night for the Democrats. That means that a lot of things have gone wrong because that should be a fairly easy five to six point win for Michael Bennett. Mm. Uh, well, I'm I'm heartened to hear that there's an election of two candidates I probably like. I like I like Rocky Mountain Democrats. I like uh, John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett. Sounds like yep. this Republican might be OK. It's very rare. The last time I felt this way, um, I was much younger and more innocent. But back in 2008, when uh, this is, again, 23 year old Andrew Heaton, when Barack Obama and John McCain secured the nominations, I remember yes. thinking, this is great. America can't lose. We've got such sterling candidates here. And I've never had that feeling ever since then. I've never had that. So maybe Colorado gets to bask in the warm glow of actually yielding decent candidates. There, you know, there is an alternate world where, you know, famously, or at least we covered it in, in Raise the Dead season two in 1964, Kennedy and Goldwater had mused about campaigning together. That they would do all their campaign stuff together. They debate each other locally for various different audiences to show that this is about ideas. It's not about knifing each other and playing dirty. Obviously, Kennedy did not make it to that election. Goldwater did. Uh, it's one of the dirtiest campaigns ever with LBJ setting a new low for uh, a television advertising with the Daisy ad. I feel like there's another fork in the road with that 2008 race where it's like that wound up becoming really kind of gross and, and, and bare knuckle. But there was, there was a world where maybe, you know, that, that one could have been a little bit more genteel. Although that's probably hindsight thinking now that we know Obama served two terms as opposed to mm -hmm. uh, getting close. Anyway, mm -hmm. do you feel sufficiently prepped? Yes, I, I think I can. I, I, I am now open for business going on shows and regurgitating your opinions as I usually do when asked about uh, the various races. Yes. All right. Well, then uh, I'll, I'll come on your show and you can uh, explain uh, uh, debt reduction and inflation to me and, and we'll, be, we'll be we'll be even. All right. I'll hold you to that. Thank you. Uh, Heaton, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, the political orphanage. We're not wrong. Anything else that you want to get out there? Nope, that's it for now. Check out the political orphanage and uh, we're not wrong is great. Check that out. All right. See you later. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show was edited by Brett Stewart. You can say thank you to Mr. Heaton at px3guest.com. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit me up uh, via the show on Twitter at px3tweets. You can see me live on the internet, px3live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. If you'd like to support me with a one-time donation, you can do so, paypal.me slash payjury on Venmo. Venmo money's not real. I keep trying to tell everybody, prove it to yourself, prove it to your family. When you send me $1, at Justin-Young-20. And of course, we have our cash app, PX3Cash. If you'd like to send me anything in the mail, you can do so. P.O. Box, 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. 
Of course, you can always get our bonus content exclusively at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets you that, plus your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Andres, Matt, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, DP Horbongo, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA Select, Star, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris, Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana, Turn 2, Miranda, Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, is awesome. Brad, Richard, D-Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Who Loves Frank Got Abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You want to be on that list? You want to have your name on the episodes that will commemorate the end of the midterms? Now's the time to do it. Take politics seriously.com. Last full week of programming before big midterm week. And and as we said during the Heaton interview, we will be live midterm night at px3live.com. That is my Twitch channel. And it's going to be a barn burner. Jan Briney, Andrew Heaton, rumors of a Brian Brushwood, rumors of a Brett Weaver, a Nexus of PX3, We're Not Wrong, and Great Night, all together. May or may not even have a big board. It's going to be fun. All that. That'll come up in, uh, I mean, 10 days from now, right? But we still got more shows between now and then. I'm still going to Nevada between now and then. Las Vegas. That's where the, the Sin City might be where the Senate is foretold. All that begins next week. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.